Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 8 this evening. Matthew chapter 8. We spent two Sundays looking at these chapters, and we'll finish our look at this chapter this evening. We may go on to also in the next week or so look at uh, chapter 10. Jesus sends out the 12, but tonight we finish this major section, uh, chapters 8 and 9. Read a section from chapter 8, verses 23 through 37, excuse me, 23 through 27, where Jesus calms the storm. But let us give our attention to God's word. Matthew 8, beginning of verse 23. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Amen. Let's ask for God's help. Father, thank you again for your word and its power and the way it penetrates our hearts. It, it can discern and, and cut you know, us apart so that it, it reaches to our very inward person. Sometimes, Lord, we'll be reading a passage or maybe listening to a sermon. It is just exactly what we need to hear. The point is made and, and your word comes alive and, and we're refreshed or we're corrected or we're encouraged or we're all of the above. And we thank you for the power of your word. It cuts through human traditions, cuts through errors, cuts through darkness. So we thank you for it. As we've even read it just for these few moments and now we'll consider it. Thank you for its, its power. And I pray it would do that work. And as we look at these uh, chapters again tonight and, and try to understand their, their basic information and, and, and submit to the teaching, will Lord show us the truth and teach us and thank you for Jesus Christ. And as we are sent out, again, may it be to go out and serve him, to yield to his authority, to enjoy him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've already spent two Sundays looking at these two chapters. So the main idea that we've been putting before you is that these two chapters give us Jesus' authority in action. When he finished the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. His words had power. As I just prayed, they cut through the traditions of men and they got to the hearts of the people who could hear it and they illuminated God's word and rang with the very authority of heaven itself. And that whole Sermon on the Mount definitely communicated, captured the idea of Jesus' authority, his authority in words. And therefore, Matthew gives us these next two chapters to give us Jesus' authority in action. He goes out healing. He goes out doing miraculous deeds. He also gives words, and they communicated authority as well. Though there perhaps is a little more focus on the authority of Jesus' actions. But if, if one section was authoritative teaching, then the other is authoritative doing, authoritative 
action. And in all of these actions, Jesus presented himself as Israel's God. God returning to his people. God exercising authority over them. And the areas that we looked at were Jesus' authority over ill health, so all of the healing stories. Jesus' authority over sin, that he has the authority to forgive sin. And those two were connected. The healing stories establish who he is, his power, his right to therefore forgive sins. The mess of creation is because of sin. So if he's reversing that curse, it's because he's come to undo the root cause of the curse, our sin, and forgive us and save us, leading eventually to new creation. We'll overlap a little bit with that tonight. And then last week or two weeks ago, last week, whichever week it was, we saw Jesus' authority over who enters the kingdom. Yeah, two weeks ago. It's fifth Sunday last week. Jesus' authority over who enters the kingdom. That he has the right to determine the terms of admission. Who comes in to God's kingdom? Who is submitting to his reign? Who has that right? Who's going to be recognized on the last day as members of God's kingdom? Jesus dealing with potential followers, Gentile converts, people of faith from Afar, Jesus is able to say uh, when he calls Matthew and his friends, hey, this is what it means to be a part of God's kingdom and to be a part of God's people. So those are the three we've seen so far. And tonight we'll look at the last three. And we'll start with Jesus's authority over creation. And again, as, as we progressed through these, the main goal has just been to, to clump them into like stories. There's several stories in both chapters. And I've simply tried to say, okay, how could we organize them into different areas of authority? And yet, as we come to something like this, Jesus' authority over creation, it seems somewhat foundational. If he has this kind of authority, then that undergirds everything we see throughout these two chapters. And Jesus' authority over creation is seen particularly in the story we just read, where Jesus calms the storm. And in the flow of the two chapters, it comes right after the two would-be followers of Jesus approached him and said, Lord, let us follow you. And he gave them those firm instructions that they weren't able to receive. And so they turned around and did not go on with him. They didn't continue with Jesus. They came to him as he was getting ready to get into the boat and go to the other side. They were saying, all right, well, let us continue with you. And he did not. They could not because they wouldn't keep the terms of discipleship. Well, Jesus gets in the boat. He embarks on the journey. And soon Jesus and his current disciples begin to experience what the rejected followers did not. A storm that threatens to swamp the boat and drown the disciples. Maybe that's one of the reasons Jesus gave them those hard instructions. He knew what would happen when they get in, got in the boat. This would not be for the faint of heart. Don't follow me if you're not ready for trouble. He knew he's going to get in that boat, and here would come this storm. Of course, we don't want to make too much of the current commitment of the disciples, because what do we see them doing in the boat? Worrying that they're about to die. So it's not as if their faith is all that stellar uh, in the face of of adversity. The winds are blowing, the waves are crashing, and the boat is in danger of being swamped, and they think we are all going to drown. And so they do what makes sense. They go and ask Jesus for help, but how do they find him? Asleep. 
Wow, what help is that? They need the Savior, and he is asleep. And they beg him to rescue them. They wake him up and put before him the urgency of the situation. And although he rebukes them, that's an interesting response. They're in danger. They go to Jesus, but he says, you have little faith. Why are you afraid? He gives them a rebuke for not trusting fully in God's control and God's power. But despite that rebuke, he does arise and calm the storm. Now, what then should the disciples learn from this story? How does it inform their faith? How does it bear witness to Jesus' authority? Well, Psalm 89 asks this question. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. And notice again the question that the disciples say after Jesus calms the storm in verse 27. What kind of man is this? Notice the similarity with the psalm, Psalm 89. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? What kind of man is this? Matthew wants his readers to put those two thoughts together and draw the obvious conclusion. You must see this Jesus as Israel's Lord. You must see him as the God of Psalm 89. Who can still the storm? Who can uh, put down those waves when they mount up? You alone, Lord God Almighty. No one else can do that. So what kind of man is this? He's the man that was identified at the beginning of Matthew, Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew, it appears, meant that quite literally. This man, Jesus, is also God. Two natures, one person, God with us, and that is why he can uh, still the storm. He demonstrates authority over creation. But there is perhaps one additional subtle dimension. The word that Matthew uses for storm, it's not the ordinary word for storm, as in weather troubles. It's usually translated as shaking. It's the Greek word seismos. You hear in that words related to earthquakes and other ways of measuring uh, the shaking of the earth. So that's not the typical word for storm. It's usually used uh, when referring to shaking, as if the earth itself were shaking. It's also used several times in Revelation, and always in context of judgment. Now, when you combine that with the idea that the sea and its forces are often used as symbols of evil, not saying the biblical authors believed in myths, so there's dragons behind those waves, but they would often use that language, and they might personify the winds and the waves, as if they were evil forces, using it as a symbolic object lesson that God can defeat the evil forces. He's over creation, and he can put down those evil forces. So all that to say, that Matthew's use of that strange word, or the unusual word, it may signal that even the stilling of the storm represents Jesus' authority over the devil. Jesus' authority over demons, and Jesus' judgment on the kingdom of darkness. Now, I'm not saying Satan controls the weather. Next time the weather's against you, well, the devil's against you. God controls everything. 
on his wonderful creation. But again, the Bible sometimes uses those things as symbols for those forces. So maybe, just maybe, not only is he the king of creation, God with us, but Matthew also wants us to see, and he is using that authority to judge the kingdom of darkness. How does he drive out the demons? Matthew tells us with his word. How does he still the storm? With his word. He has that kind of authority to reign and to judge for the good of his people. And as we've already said, the disciples can only respond with amazement. Maybe they're starting to put the dots together. What kind of man is this, they ask. Maybe they're starting to realize he's more than just a man. He is God with us. So Jesus' authority over creation. Let's look next at Jesus' authority over demons and darkness. Whether the illusion and the storm story is intended or not, it becomes explicit in the very next story, verses 28 through 34. So let's look at those verses now. Verse 28 reads, When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? When the boat lands on the other side, Jesus and the disciples embark from the boat. And they are met by two demon-possessed men. And these men are so violent that people usually cannot travel this route. That that's a safe, uh, a dangerous road. You don't want to go down that road. People would circulate that news in this area. The demon-possessed men, they're physically violent, they'll attack you, don't go that way. And as Jesus and his disciples go that way, so you see Jesus planning some confrontation with the devil and darkness, the two men greet them and immediately the demons recognize who Jesus is. And interestingly, they also recognize that he has the right to judge them. And they wonder, have you come here before the appointed time, maybe thinking of the final judgment, but Jesus is bringing that judgment into reality even right now. So they know who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And I've always found it interesting that the demons faced with Jesus want to go into the herd of pigs. It's, it's like they have some kind of objection uh, to being thrown out of some kind of body. So maybe one of you can take that and study that out. Maybe Dale's next sermon, he can go into why that is. Jesus, interestingly, grants the request. He sends the demons out of the men into the pigs. And then they immediately drive the pigs into the lake to their death. And sometimes, in my mind, I think I've seen this on Sunday school literature, you may imagine running up a hill and, and going over the cliff. Here the image is more of just kind of driving down the bank and right into the sea. And they are therefore plunged. They're, they're killed when they drown in the water. Now, by the way, side note. Here's another thing I've always wondered about this story. What did that do for that town's economy? I mean, that many pigs probably supported a large number of people in that town economically. And Jesus, for the sake of these two men, ruined that town's economy. 
Story doesn't comment on it. Mark's, Matthew's point isn't to tell us that. But wow, I've always wondered. Dale, you can figure that one out too. But the pigs go in, they're destroyed. What is then the point of the story? The point of the story is to emphasize this direct confrontation between Jesus, the Son of God, and the kingdom of darkness. Jesus has authority over demons. Jesus has authority over darkness. In fact, interestingly, there's not that much attention even given to the two men themselves in this story. I mean, they appear just to be a host for these demons. If you read Mark's version of this story, there's a little more attention given to one of the men that Jesus delivers. They find him sitting and he's in his right mind. You may remember he wants to go with Jesus. And it says, Jesus says, well, just go home and tell everybody else what things the Lord has done for you. Matthew chooses to omit that material in telling this story. All of the focus is on Jesus's authority over demons and darkness. And why is that such an important theme for Matthew to show us? Because that is getting to the heart of what Jesus has come to do. It is showing how God is fulfilling these Old Testament promises. That there would come one day a deliverer. And this deliverer would save God's people in the last days. And this goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible story. Genesis 3.15. Right after Adam and Eve sinned. This promise is made. He will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. Eve, we're going to rescue you from your allegiance to the devil. And one day we're going to send you a seed that will crush the serpent's head. Oh yes, the serpent will strike at his heel. He'll nip at it. He'll wound it somewhat. But he's going to fatally kill you. Strike your head. That is the, that is the foundational promise of salvation in the Old Testament. Often called the first gospel there. Right at the beginning of scripture. So Satan's kingdom is doomed from the start. Hasn't happened yet. We're waiting on it. It's promised. It's anticipated. But when this Jesus shows up and is casting out demons and is pushing Satan's kingdom back, that is the conclusion that Israel should make. Here is this seed of the woman come to crush the head of the serpent. There's a few times in the Old Testament as well, and we've actually looked at these in detail, so don't even have to go there tonight. But earthly kings will be described in demonic terms. I think Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, some of those passages that talk about Satan and his fall, that they originally are being addressed to earthly kings. But the prophet sees behind that king an even greater dark force at work. And, and, and the biblical authors are often telling people, you know, your ultimate enemy isn't that human. Your ultimate enemy is the evil force behind it. Satan, and he can enslave you through sin, and you need to be rescued from that by God's power, not by trusting yourself. And Jesus is just taking what's implied there and putting it front and center. That's your enemy. The devil and demons, and I've got authority over, come to destroy his kingdom. Last section then, Jesus' authority over death. Now again, we could have included this story in the earlier stories where we looked at Jesus healing his authority over ill health and, and how he used Isaiah 53 even to show uh, how his healing ministry connects to 
the plan of salvation. But I wanted to isolate this story because it has a greater magnitude. Because here Jesus doesn't simply heal someone. He raises them from the dead. Not a quality of life improvement, but an actual restoration of life altogether. So this is over in chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. And what you have here are two stories sandwiched together. The section begins when a synagogue leader asks Jesus to raise his daughter from the dead. And Jesus agrees to go and do so. And on the way to raise her, he has the encounter with the woman with the issue of blood. And this would appear to be an incurable condition. One that would render her not only physically uh, ill, but also socially separated because there was a, a ritual uncleanness connected with her condition. That would have kept her apart somewhat from Israel's worship and perhaps even involvement with society. While, while Jesus goes to raise this girl from the dead, this woman comes up and touches the edge of his cloak and she is healed. So she's physically restored. She's socially restored. You have cleanness going from Jesus to the woman, not vice versa. That's how it's often described in the Old Testament. You can contract uncleanness. And that's why Israel has these laws for cleanness and uncleanness. But Jesus reverses the flow of power, reverses the flow of electricity there, so to speak. And cleanness goes from him to the woman. It's like when he healed the leper. He didn't become unclean. The leper became clean. When he went to the Gentiles' house, the Gentiles came to know the Lord. Jesus didn't contract ritual uh, defilement. And he tells the woman, your faith has saved you. And that's often translated as healed you because that's the immediate focus. But, but Matthew does choose the word to use the word saved. I think once again, it's intentional. It shows a little double meaning here. Ultimately, your faith will connect you with God, with his son. That is where salvation comes. So Jesus heals this woman, but then he comes to the home of the synagogue leader. And the mourners are there, maybe professional mourners hired for the occasion. And Jesus dismisses them. He says, the girl is only sleeping. And that, by the way, is a common image for death in the Bible. Death is often described as someone falling asleep. Not because it's a commentary on the state of the soul. Some have seen that as saying, okay, both the body and the soul are asleep. But you have enough language in the Bible that talk about the saints enjoying the presence of God, being absent from the body and present with the Lord, to rule out the idea that the soul itself is asleep. Well, why then the language? Because it highlights the expectation that the dead will live again. When you believe that one day God is going to restore his creation and he's going to bring people back who have died and the righteous are going to once again inherit the earth and enjoy what Adam and Eve lost, then it changes how you think and in this case even speak about death. They're not gone forever. That condition isn't permanent. They're just asleep waiting for the trumpet of the last day and the voice of God to wake them up as if they had taken a good nap. But what does Jesus do here? He comes and once again, he, he risks ritual defilement. He can't touch a dead body. But the direction continues to go out 
from the Savior. And while the crowd rejects any idea that Jesus can work a miracle here, he does just that. And he demonstrates his authority even over death and raises this girl to life. Now, what then is the big deal? Is it just, hey, look, miracles, they prove Jesus' divinity, they show his power? You know what? Yes. If, if, if that's all we said, that would be good. That would be encouraging. But Matthew intends a little more than that. He's weaving it into a story. In the book of Daniel, we have these words. There's going to be a time of distress that comes upon God's people. But Daniel says, at that time, after the time of distress, your people, Everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. If you are a reader of the Old Testament, your future hope, was that one day the dead would live again. It, it is stated explicitly in the book of Daniel. But as we know from Jesus' words at the burning bush, it's implied even from the beginning. What did Jesus tell the Sadducees? You, you should have known from God's words at the burning bush. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You should have known from that that the dead will live again. And, and I confess like you, reading that and being like, how are they supposed to know that the dead would live again, but probably the idea is if God makes a covenant, it is to fix the problem of sin. If God saves the people and rescues them and becomes their God, it is to fix the problem that Adam and Eve brought into creation. That is sin, that is death, therefore implied resurrection. So whether stated explicitly in Daniel or implied in the very covenant from the beginning, the hope of God's people is that the dead will rise again on the last day. Many a faithful Israelite hoped in that. Many a faithful Israelite died trusting that they'd be raised from the dead on the last day. Well, you know what Jesus says? It's what I hinted at quickly in the sermon this morning. That last day is breaking in right now. What God has promised for the future is starting right now. And I'm going to raise this girl from the dead. And I'm going to raise some other people from the dead. And one day they're going to kill me. And God will raise me from the dead. Because I and he have authority even over death. Jesus is God with us. That is the conclusion we must make as we read these stories. And therefore, bow to his authority, yield to his authority, live under his authority. And then we will not experience judgment like the kingdom of darkness, like the demons. Instead, we will experience life with the Savior. Let me close with this observation. The, this section of Matthew ends, just like the Sermon on the Mount, with amazement. Uh, chapter 9, verse 33. The crowd was amazed. And said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. So just like they were with him on the mountain, they said, man, no one teaches like this. Well, same conclusion at the end of these two chapters, which, which is how we get the clue that Matthew groups them on purpose. They're amazed. No one has ever done anything like this. How should they respond? How should we respond? Notice the one section we skipped that we didn't yet explain. And this is not be a detailed explanation. 
But I think it gives us how we should respond. Chapter 9, verses 14 through 17, when Jesus is asked about fasting. How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. How should we respond to this authority? By recognizing what so many others do not. Now is not the time for fasting. That's what Jesus told them. The Pharisees may fast. John the Baptist may fast. And you know what? Some, the Old Testament does talk positively about fasting. But Jesus says, I'm here. I'm the king. The bridegroom's here. The kingdom is here. So now is the time to rejoice. It's to celebrate my authority. It is not a time then to squeeze my teachings into the old Jewish mold. And I'm not thinking primarily there of the Old Testament, as if Jesus is dismissing the Old Testament. Maybe more the traditions that have grown up around it. And the Pharisees are trying to say, okay, how can we make Jesus fit these traditions? And Jesus is saying, it's time to rethink all that. Rethink the kingdom of God. Rethink how God will come to his people. Free it from the human traditions that have grown up around it. See how what I'm doing actually fulfills the law, brings the Old Testament to its intended conclusion, and busts your traditions into a thousand pieces. One commentator puts it like this. Matthew brings to a close his comprehensive collage of the authoritative activity of the Messiah, both in his unquestioned power over a wide variety of threatening forces, natural and supernatural, and in the uncompromising demand which he makes on those who are called to follow him. But the overriding note is not one of hard power, but of deliverance and joy. As people are set free from danger, disease, demonic powers, and death, and called to share with Jesus and enjoying the new wine of the kingdom of heaven. It is a good authority. One we should listen to. Is that the need tonight? To, to bow the knee to Jesus' authority? It's authority over all the evil forces in your life and even the sins which threaten you. Is that the message you need tonight? The comfort that Jesus is in control? It's an authority over death. You've got a good future. You're safe in God's hands if you yield to him and follow him. Whatever the need may be, Jesus has authority. It's a good authority we can trust. So let's give thanks for that as we close in prayer. Father in heaven, Thank you so much for Jesus' authority, that he is in charge, that his kingdom has come. So therefore, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for the picture of the Savior that we see by faith as you are revealed here in the word. Forgive us of where we resist your authority. Forgive us where we don't trust your authority. Thank you that you are indeed sovereign and in control. Like Joseph said, am I in the place of God? No, you meant evil, but God meant it for good. Because you were God, he didn't have to judge. Because you were God, he could be kind. Because you were God, he could trust that all of the events of his life would indeed work together for good. 
And that because of your sovereignty, his story would be sweeter. Well, may we believe that. May we uh, enjoy that as well. May we trust in that. And may we know that good authority of Jesus in our life. As Rick played, prayed earlier, keep us safe as we go home. Thank you for the saints of God here at Robot. Dismiss us with your blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.